listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Urey. PTCE Pharmacy Connect listeners, this is Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you know me, you know how excited I get when we get to do these, sharing with you another PTCE Pharmacy Connect continuing education podcast. I love being able to deliver content from pharmacists to pharmacists in supporting your learning efforts moving forward, and especially when we get to update our listening audience with new information. Today is exciting, so I want to introduce our special guest, Dr. Drew Cates, PharmD. I'm going to have uh, Drew introduce himself and set some um, some some exciting uh, news about PrEP, and we're going to dig into this discussion. I've been waiting for this discussion, but Drew, welcome to PTC Pharmacy Connect. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It's great being here. So a little bit about you, Drew, um, with our, our, our listening audience. We, um, we want to know more about you. Great. Uh, so I am currently the Director of Education at Synergy RX, which is a chronic care management company. And I recently joined the team. Prior to that, I had been in academia and in an HIV clinic um, as part of my role. So HIV is a passion of mine for the patient population and then trying to prevent the HIV acquisition. So this podcast is perfect for me. I'm excited about it. Excellent. And I know that you're like me. You're a, you're a dog dad as well. I am. I have two Labradoodles. Uh, yes, Louie and Lloyd. So if we accidentally hear them today, audience, um, and you can you apologize, we'll we'll just we'll just carry on, and you can keep walking, keep driving, and and if you hear a dog dog in the background, it's it's how we live today with all this virtual learning. So, but thank you so much, uh, Drew, for that. And let's talk about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, and known as PrEP, and and how it's been shown to reduce the sexual transmission of HIV by 99% when taken correctly. That's exciting. Um, We've come a long way since what I remember the 70s and 80s and how horrific the disease uh, HIV seemed to be. There's so much hope uh, happening now. Pharmacists are are helping to lead in these treatments. And and it is an estimated that there's 1.2 million people in the United States that have indications uh, for PrEP. However, as of 2020, only 20% were receiving PrEP. And when I think of who sees our patients the most, uh, we know that our pharmacists are seeing patients nine more times than their primary care physicians. So this is a national call out and we're taking action to end the HIV epidemic. And one way to do that and to fulfilling our goals is educating pharmacists by pharmacists and assuring equitable access to HIV prevention for all who could benefit. So today we're gonna discuss the current state of HIV in the United States, and we're gonna delve into the prevention options and what pharmacists can do to ensure equitable access to the people that we're serving. I'm excited about this, Drew, so let's let's jump into this. Um, 
So prior to PrEP, individuals that were at high risk for acquiring HIV were counseled on utilizing forms of barrier protection, such as vaginal and penal uh, condoms uh, to prevent the sexual transmission of HIV. However, since the FDA approved PrEP, um, it's become a vital resource in ending the HIV epidemic in the United States. Uh, Drew, could you touch on the current status of HIV in the U.S. and the role of PrEP ending the epidemic? Absolutely. PrEP is, is a wonderful addition to the healthcare team, especially for those treating HIV. Um, because HIV is no longer a death sentence. It's more or less a current disease state. When I was in my HIV clinic, even I told my patients, I would rather have HIV than diabetes. And my patients kind of like stood back and were like, wait, what? Um, but when we think about diabetes and treatment, pricking your finger two, three, four times a day, giving yourself insulin shots, HIV has become so much more manageable. But there is still increased morbidity and mortality and cost to the patients in society. And that's where PrEP comes in. And it's an important step in assisting to meet the goals of ending the HIV epidemic by 2030. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, we, it's an effective tr way to prevent the transmission of HIV. Um, so yeah, it, it's a great addition to the healthcare team. So it sounds like there's really been some uh, amazing progress made, um, but we still need to um, to take action and, and educate and and also um, get the, um, the, the patients, the, the, the population, the medication. So could you go over who should be considered for PrEP? Yes, the CDC has published these great guidelines. They're the US Public Health Service and CDC PrEP practice guidelines. And they were recently updated in 2021. And they have three main groups or individuals who they say should be qualified or indicated for PrEP. And those three categories are men who have sex with men or MSM. Then they have men who have sex with women or MSW and women who have sex with men or WSM. And then finally, persons who inject drugs or PWID. All of those categories have to have one more qualifying factor. So for example, an HIV partner, positive partner with an unknown or detectable viral load and viral load is how we assess how much virus is in the person's body who has been infected with HIV and the when they're put on to antiretrovirals that viral load will be undetectable so we would like for the person who is not HIV positive to be having sex with someone who doesn't have a detectable viral load we, we would like it to be undetectable Another qualifying factor would be if they have more than one sexual partner of an unknown HIV status, and then any history of sexually transmitted infections, particularly gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis in the past six months, because we have found with studies that if people are presenting with gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis, there are higher rates of transmission of HIV. Um, also, if for those who inject drugs, we look at those, if they've been um, injecting with individuals who are known to be HIV positive, or if they're just sharing their injection equipment. All right, so is there any data, some updates for PrEP uptake in, in the United States? Could you share us, share our audience um, uh, 
about that as well? Definitely. Since FDA approval in 2012, the estimated number of individuals receiving prescriptions for PrEP has increased from about 9,000 to, in 2018, 220,000. However, the CDC estimates there are a little over 1.2 million individuals living in the U.S. who have an indication for PrEP, but just not receiving those PrEP prescriptions, unfortunately. Okay, we've done a lot of studies. We've done many interviews. We even have a series called Transforming the Nation, which has pharmacists leading many issues in healthcare. Some of those are not clinical. Some of those are tied back to equality and equity and pharmacy deserts and the lack of care in specific areas. There seems to be a lack of equity and evident disparities when it comes to the provision of HIV treatment and prevention services. So what are some of the challenges faced in our country? Well, that's a great question. Patient populations that we've seen who have the largest distribution of new HIV diagnoses is based on some areas that are categorized by geography or location, racial and ethnic distribution, as well as sex. And those populations have, we found that they have the lowest number of prescriptions for PrEP. When we break it down by each section, so geography, for example, in 2019, individuals who were living in southern states had the lowest numbers of PrEP prescriptions at about 75,000, but the highest number of new diagnoses at about 19,000 compared to any other U.S. region. When we look at race and ethnic distribution, individuals who are Black were 42% of our new HIV diagnoses but only 6% who were indicated for a PrEP prescription received that prescription. When looking at Hispanic and Latinx persons, 27% of new HIV diagnosis were Latinx individuals, but only 10% who had indications for PrEP received a prescription. Whereas in contrast, when we look at PrEP prescription rates in white persons, it was seven times higher than black persons and four times higher than Hispanic or Latinx persons. So despite our increased vulnerability to HIV acquisition, only about 1% of clinically indicated Black persons and 3% of clinically indicated Hispanics or Latinx individuals were actually prescribed PrEP compared to 14% of clinically indicated white people. When we look at sex, women constitute about 19% of new HIV diagnoses in the United States, but only about 7% who were indicated for PrEP prescriptions received a prescription. Overall, these alarming statistics emphasize the continued need for advocacy and improved access to care for men and women of color, as well as other racial minorities. Drew, thank you for shedding some light on the challenges that we're facing as a nation. Um, I know that the communities throughout the country, uh, some of them, multiple pharmacies are in the area um, and, and healthcare service are, services are, are available and prevalent. On the exact flip side of that, we have sections of the United States that just don't have um, as much uh, coverage and or any coverage for miles, 20 miles, 30 miles away, where sometimes the pharmacy is the only provider of services. So 
we're going to discuss how pharmacists can be vital to improving some of these challenges um, that the nation is facing. But first, let's shift gears and review some of our available PrEP options. We have three effective and safe options for PrEP. Let's start with the oral options, Truvada and Discovi. Could you tell us about those, Drew? Definitely. Truvada, the first one that you had mentioned, was the first one that was approved in 2012. And it's comprised of two agents, but it's a single tablet. It's emtricitabine and tenofovir-disoproxil. And I know for those pharmacists who are listening, it's kind of like we start getting that PTSD from when we were in pharmacy school and starting to learn these because it's something that we're, we do not see usually a lot unless you specialize in it. So again, those are the emtricitabine and tenofovir-disoproxil that make up the single tablet Truvada. And again, it's a single tablet. It's once daily. It was approved for adults and adolescents who weigh at least 35 kilograms or about 77 pounds and who are at risk of acquiring HIV. The emtricitabine and tenofovir-disoproxil come from the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor drug class or the NRTI class. There is a generic that is available that just recently became available. The one thing or the caveat with this drug, with this combination pill is it is only approved for patients who have a creatinine clearance or renal function that is above 60. What's been great about this is it's been shown to be 99% effective if an individual takes all seven doses in a week. When we look at the individual and they're taking it four times per week, it's been shown to be 96% effective. And at two doses per week, it's been shown to be 76% effective. So it's very effective when taken appropriately at seven days per week. Some adverse effects that we see with this are headache, abdominal pain, some weight loss. Um, and when there's been long-term long-term or continued use with this medication, it's been shown to have some renal toxicity or damage and also some bone mineral density loss as well. When I say those, quite a long time or long-term, we're talking about 10 plus years of continuously taking it. Our other option is Descovi, and it's the reformulated version of the tenofovir-disoproxil. They changed the salt formulation to be tenofovir-alafenamide, so it is emtricitabine and tenofovir-alafenamide to comprise Descovi. And it too, like Truvada, the pill we had just talked about, is a single once daily pill that's approved for adults, the same weight of about 77 pounds, same individuals, adolescents who are at risk of acquiring HIV. And it too, like Truvada, is the NRTI drug class, the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor drug class. The generic is not available at this time. It is not FDA approved for women because there weren't enough individuals who enrolled in the studies for it. So only Truvada or the intracitabine tenofovir-disoproxil form is approved for women. The newer one, Descovi, or the intracitabine tenofovir-alafenamide is not approved for women. And because they reformulated that salt, the renal function or the creatinine clearance is approved for individuals who have a little bit less or worse renal function than how it is for Truvada or the emtricitabine tenofovir-disoproxil. And it is approved for individuals 
down to 30 milliliters per minute. It has similar efficacy for virologic suppression or preventing the acquisition of HIV. The most common adverse effect or the highest adverse effect that individuals complained about who took this tablet was diarrhea. Uh, and it is considered an alternative to tenofovir disoproxyl and entracitabine or the Truvada month daily pill. But overall, the key thing to stress for these two oral options is adherence. Again, at that seven-day mark is where you get that 99% efficacy at preventing HIV acquisition. Drew, one of my favorite parts of talking with pharmacists on PTC Pharmacy Connect is the ability to do, dig deeper into newer options and newer medications that are coming out for uh, different um, conditions, disease states. So I just want to take a moment and, and jump in uh, to the injectable option uh, since it's newer and our listeners might be less familiar with it. Most recently, at the end of 2021, we had a long-acting injectable option called Apertude um, enter, um, that entered the scene, and it was an option for PrEP. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. We recently, in December 2021, it was approved, and we saw it hit in January, February-ish, it made it available. Apertude is, the generic is cabotegravir. So it's a new integrase inhibitor, and it's formulated as an immediate release oral tablet for daily administration, as well as a long-acting injectable suspension for IM or intramuscular administration. And it's dosed at 600 milligrams once in a 3 ml IM injection in the gluteal muscle. And then that's the initial dose. Second dose is the same amount of 600 milligrams as a one-time 3 ml IM or intramuscular injection in the gluteal muscle. But that second dose occurs four weeks after the first dose or one month at the follow-up visit. And then after that, it's every eight weeks, four months, three, five, seven, and continuing going on however long the individual would like to receive it. There are two major studies that were done for evaluating its efficacy. Those are the HPTN-083 and the HPTN-084. For the HPTN-083, it was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, non-inferiority international trial. So it was all over. And it evaluated the safety and efficacy of cabotegravir compared to once-daily oral tenofovir disoproxyl and entracitabine for PrEP. And patients that enrolled, the number were about 4,500 uninfected men and transgender women who have sex with men. Again, that's a high-risk individual category for PrEP that we would want to prescribe or recommend PrEP to because they're high-risk for acquiring HIV. And when they looked at the study, they were looking for the primary endpoint to see if the HIV acquisition occurred in higher rates or did not occur at all when they compared the tenofovir disoproxyl and entracitabine. The trial did look to see if they could test superiority. So they looked to see if it was not better, but not worse. But then they also set it up for, could it be better than the oral tablet as well? 
So they were kind of thinking this may be better, but we'll see if it works or not in this chart first. The results were actually really great. And the primary analysis showed that only 13 infections occurred in the cabotegravir group or about 66% lower occurrence of acquisition of HIV-1 infection. However, when they looked a little bit closer, they saw that one of the infections that occurred while receiving cabotegravir was something that was prevalent prior to starting the study, resulting in only 12 overall HIV-1 infections while in cabotegravir, or a 69% lower occurrence of HIV-1 infection compared to tenofovir, disaproxyl, and entracitabine, that tablet, who had 39 infections of HIV-1 whenever you compared them. Again, if we break that down, there's four of 12 patients receiving cabotegravir um, looked at developing a integrase mutation, and then four of the 39 patients who, who received the oral tablet of tenofovir and entracitabine developed the NRTI mutations, which when we look at HIV, we would try to prevent mutations from occurring because it makes it more difficult to treat HIV. Looking at the other study, the HBTN084, it also was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled superiority. So the HBTN083 set up the study for the HBTN084, the, superior, the superiority trial of the safety and efficacy of cabotegravir compared with once-daily oral tenofovir and entracitabine. And there were about 3,000 patients who were unenrolled. They had to be uninfected, and they were cisgender women at risk of acquiring HIV, one infection in sub-Saharan Africa. And the primary goal was the incidence of HIV, one infection among participants who were randomized to receive either oral cabotegravir and injections of cabotegravir compared to the once-daily oral tenofovir entracitabine. And the results showed that three infections occurred in the cabotegravir group, which was an 88% lower occurrence of acquiring HIV-1 infection. However, as in the HBTN083 study, when they did further studying or evaluation, they found that one of the infections on the cabotegravir had the infection prior to it. So the individual had HIV-1 prior to starting this study. Thus, cabotegravir had a 90% lower occurrence of HIV-1 infection compared to the tenofovir disaproxyl entracitabine tablet with 36 HIV-1 infections. So HIV-1 infections occurred 12 times less with cabotegravir compared to once daily oral tenofovir disaproxyl and entracitabine. So when we break that a little bit further, zero of the three patients receiving cabotegravir developed an INST mutation or an integrase mutation. And then one of the 36 patients who received the oral tablet tenofovir-disaproxyl-entracitabine developed a NRTI or nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor mutation, which again makes it more difficult to treat HIV with those mutations. Overall, the adverse effects from those studies that, we, that patients complained about was mild to moderate injection site rejections. Remember, we're injecting this into the gluteal muscle, so that's going to be more common that, to have that pain. It was associated with about 80% of the patients who complained about that when they received this injection. 
Drew, thanks so much for covering so much detail um, about the trial data um, available for PrEP. And, um, you know, I, I think of pharmacists being able to give their assessments based on patients taking um, medications, in this case, obviously PrEP. And I think of um, the physician pharmacy teams determining if oral or injectable for specific candidates one may be better than the other. So what would you say is the impact of this new option and who should be considered for it? Definitely. It's a great question to consider. Cabotegavir should be appropriate or considered for patients who have renal disease because there's no renal dosing with it, like what we see with the other two oral options. And also individuals who may not be the best about sticking to adhering to their medications, right? Um, because like we talked about with the oral options, adherence is key at taking it once daily for seven days out of the seven days of a week. You get that 90, 99% efficacy. With cabotegravir, because it's injection, it lasts so long in the body for two months. But we do need to consider, are they going to be coming back every two months to receive their injections? So that's something that with caution for those individuals who maybe have adherence issues, but also who we could keep around enough to see them every two months. Some other important considerations that might affect PrEP implementation with cabotegravir are, although injectable PrEP has the potential to offer effective HIV prevention without the, the daily pill burden that we all worry about, little is known about the influence the adherence might be to the injection sites. Second, the prolonged subtherapeutic pharmacokinetic. Again, for those pharmacists out there, I, they're, I feel like they're like panicking hearing that pharmacokinetic PTSD from school. But the kinetic effect represents a period of vulnerability to the HIV infection. And the optimal way to come off injectable antiretrovirals needs to have a little bit more investigation, as does whether the use of an oral PrEP formulation to cover the prolonged effect during the so-called PK or pharmacokinetic washout is advisable or not. Uh, this might be particularly challenging for individuals who should benefit from injectable PrEP, such as those with mental health conditions, uh, substance use disorders, those who live in poverty um, or going from house to house, um, belonging to a socially marginalized group or other factors associated with impaired regimen adherence. Again, adherence is key for the oral, but hopefully with the injectable, it will help more. Furthermore, there are no changes in cabotegravir pharmacokinetics or PK with the use of hormonal contraceptives, which is great for our transgender patients. Third, the administration of the long-acting cabotegravir as an IM injection into the gluteal muscle is being evaluated in the HPTN083 and 084 studies, excluding trans women who have surgically placed or injected buttock implants or fillers, because that is common with transgender patients. And the use of alternative injection sites needs to be a little bit more evaluated. And then finally, cabotegravir cannot be utilized with rifampin, which restricts its use for individuals also treated for tuberculosis although rifibutin appears to not have those same issues of drug-drug interactions. 
Overall, though, a potential concern of long-acting injectable antiretrovirals is the prolonged sub-therapeutic pharmacokinetic or PK effect. Whether this effect represents a prolonged period of antiviral activity or a period of vulnerability during which if HIV infection were to be acquired, selection for integrase or INSTI inhibitor resistance could occur is still not fully understood or known, which may make it something that we would need to consider long-term in patients. Thanks, Drew, for determining the the best case for an injectable versus oral really helps. Um, and I'm sure our, our listeners appreciate that insight. Before we discuss specific strategies for pharmacists to optimize uh, the use of PrEP, are there other options in the pipeline which could be utilized for, for PrEP? Yes, there are. There are four types of long-acting HIV PrEP options in development and currently being researched. They are the intravaginal ring, and that's the depivirine vetering. And depivirine is a NN or non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, so the NNRTI class. And it has activity against a broad range of HIV-1 subtypes, and it was developed for topical administration. And it's looking at patients from or women in that 18 to 45 range who would well tolerate this individual, this uh, this vaginal ring. There's also implants. So long-acting implants would be small devices implanted in the body that release an anti-HIV drug that's controlled release. There's also injectable drugs like we just discussed. And then they're also looking into antibodies, which are being evaluated um, to see if we could infuse them and then see if um, they could stop a wide variety of HIV strains from infecting human cells in the laboratory. So they would be called, they're like broadly neutralizing antibodies or BNABs, which I know off off the air, we were kind of discussing how you love those MABs. Well, now they have N as in Nancy NABs. <laughs> so that's going to be something new for you, as well as me and all the other pharmacists. And that's in the very, very early stages of clinical trials. So we have a little bit of time to start learning those tricky names. Great. Thanks for the flag, Drew. I appreciate that. No problem. So let's talk about pharmacists being the center in many cases in many communities throughout the country where they are the they're the provider they're the one that is talking to their community about everything about contraception and cancer medications and vaccines and so we know our pharmacists are the, the center in many times of, of education so let's talk about that so how how can pharmacists help individuals who are seeking more information or want to be initiated on PrEP and how can they help them bridge the gaps in care? Yeah, great. Pharmacists are great in the healthcare because we are considered to be one of the uh, most accessible individuals in healthcare. So we can support medication adherence, which like we discussed earlier with the oral tablets, medication adherence is key not only just for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, but for all other disease states. But with this one particularly, we could also educate patients about their meds, help them anticipate and manage side effects. Um, asking about adherence, 
success and encouragement. We could follow up with our patients. There's multiple ways. We can assist patients to establish dosing routines, like setting a phone alarm, or if you always put on a pair of these specific pair of shoes to go to work every day, put your pills in your shoes, whatever works for you. Um, we can address or help with financial. Um, we could do substance use disorder. Um, we can help with mental health needs that would inhibit or prohibit patients from being adherent. There are multiple ways. We can also identify patients at risk of HIV. We could target personalized barriers to their medication adherence. Um, we can link patients to other providers. Uh, and if necessary, in some states, we can even initiate PrEP without um, without having to go to a provider such as a medical provider, um, like a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, an MD or DO. So for example, in uh, October of 2019, California was the first state that became um, authorized to allow pharmacists to treat HIV patients using PrEP under SB 159. And California pharmacists were given jurisdiction to prescribe medications for PrEP without collaborative practice agreements with providers, so MDs or DOs. And shortly after that, a few other states, like in 2021, five states expanded the pharmacist role in prevention of HIV. So in June of 2021, Nevada passed laws. June 22nd, uh, Missouri followed. June 23rd, Oregon followed. In August, North Carolina followed, and in September, Utah followed. And then the most recent state that is allowing pharmacists to prescribe PrEP without prescriptions is Illinois. And in June of 2022, they passed the HB 4439, which allows for pharmacists to prescribe PrEP without prescriptions from a medical provider, which is great. It's really showing what pharmacists can do. Um, pharmacists can also facilitate facilitate um, uptake and adherence through consultation for not only HIV screening, but for individuals who are just inquiring about it. We could do point of care testing for HIV and sexually transmitted infections or STIs. We can do counseling. Uh, even after some thorough training, pharmacists could even conduct prep consultations. And for those who are eligible, could even prescribe it with a collaborative practice agreement. So there are multiple areas where pharmacists can really get in and assist in helping with the acquisition of PrEP to patients. Drew, it's exciting to see pharmacists um, taking more active and leading roles in immunizations, uh, birth control, and now preventing HIV. This is extremely exciting. We have to take advantage of our 300,000 plus pharmacists that are out there uh, serving our communities. And I, I think other governments and other state organizations are going to recognize the accessibility, especially the pandemic taught us a lot about the power of our pharmacists. I think they're going to take advantage of that. And I think we'll see other um, states following um, the ones that you mentioned, Missouri, Oregon, and our latest Illinois. Um, can't wait. Um, I'm in Pennsylvania. Can't wait for Pennsylvania to to uh, adopt the same uh, measures and modalities for treatment and putting um, control, more control in the hands of our pharmacists where it makes sense. I think the communication that you mentioned, uh, Drew, the consultation, 
that's key. That's the that's the opportunity for pharmacists to under un, uncover um, things that sometimes patients aren't even sharing with their primary care physician. It's all about you know bringing the patient back to uh, um, a point of trust. And I want to talk about trust a little bit. Um, trust can be eaten away in our communities and in in healthcare by stigmas. So how can pharmacists be champions in overcoming stigma? Uh, related to discussions around HIV prevention? Yeah, when we integrate pharmacists into the PrEP care continuum, it has the potential to increase accessibility of PrEP among those hard-to-reach populations. And you brought it up perfectly. I think sometimes when we have providers, um, patients don't want to be as honest because there's that relationship. And, um, you know, talking about sexually transmitted infections and sex in general is sometimes uncomfortable and um, talking about a pharmacist where they're picking up their condoms or their medications, it makes it a little bit easier and not as formalized. So those hard to reach patient populations, such as our black and Latin X um, men who have sex with men or MSM patient population who are hesitant to go to the STI clinics or the, you know, the sexually transmitted infection clinics or ask their providers about PrEP are where pharmacists really can help a lot. Um, we could offer HIV and STI testing in the pharmacy as a step that would be fast and immediate that could be taken to generate demand or document the need for PrEP in a pharmacy area. And that's really where I'm hoping we will be able to go across the nation, not just in those few states that we had previously mentioned. Agreed, Drew. Excellent. Thank you. So we have touched on this, but it's still a barrier to providing the care um, that our nation needs and people who are candidates for, um, for HIV prevention, as you've mentioned. So let's talk about access. Um, access is always an important topic when it comes to um, leveraging these medications, especially HIV prevention. So how can pharmacists improve access to PrEP services and therapies? What resources are available, Drew? Pharmacists, we remove barriers to medication uptake and access with knowledge of medication reimbursement, alternative mechanism of payments like um, co-payment assistance. This steadily accessible follow-up care serves as a means for patient education and comprehensive HIV risk reduction counseling. Like you had mentioned, that's key is counseling. Education is always key. In conjunction with pharmacologic prophylaxis, uh, patients indicated for and or initiated on PrEP have limited access due to transportation, high healthcare and copay costs and disparities in provider prescription, which all present a need to expand access to PrEP. And we as pharmacists play an important role in PrEP uptake and adherence by assisting access to prescriptions, where we are an important part of this PrEP process. Drew, this has been an excellent uh, conversation, extremely educational. I'm going to be sharing this through all of our social media platforms. Very excited about this one. We've been waiting for uh, this prep discussion. So 
Thank you so much, uh, Drew, for, for doing this for us. Before, before we let you go, like all of our amazing pharmacist guests, we always have the final question, and that is, so what would you say is the single most important takeaway today for our pharmacists listening in? Oh, the single most. Okay. All right. The future of pre for prevention of HIV is exciting, and we have new agents in the pipeline for development. We have promising strategies that go from oral agents to options or um, long-acting injectable preparations and maybe even infusions of immunotherapies, vaginal rings, um, and more on the forefront. Um, so we have so much in the pipeline for this. But overall, pharmacists, we are integral members in that in the interdisciplinary healthcare team for PrEP education, utilization, access, adherence in the United States. All of this will assist in meeting the ending the HIV epidemic, which is the U.S. initiative to end HIV diagnoses by 2030. That's, I think, the key takeaway. We are important and should be standing up and taking more of an active role in this. Dr. Drew Cates, thank you so much for today and the information that you've provided to our listeners for HIV uh, prep and and defending. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, defending our our patients out there. So I I thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Pharmacists, shout out to you. You are our most favorite providers. You are champions. You're the communicators. Make sure that you're giving feedback to your primary care partners and doctors that are out there. Let them know what's going on. Let them know that you are fighting for their patients, your patients, the patients together, hashtag TogetherRx. This is an exciting time to be a pharmacist and being in this industry. If there's anything that you ever need, please reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network as well as the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team. This isn't just about continuing education. This is about empowering you as pharmacists across this nation so that we have a healthier nation to move forward. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.